the RTI time machine. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste. And the destination Taiwan schools. What goes into an education? What does it mean to be educated? What has education meant through time? These are questions the National Museum of Taiwan History poses in its latest exhibit, Time for School: Modern Education in Taiwan. The exhibit traces the story of modern education in Taiwan from its beginnings more than a hundred years ago. Last week, museum curator Zhang Yingzhi joined us to tell the first part of this story, beginning in the 1890s. We heard how decades as a Japanese colony brought new kinds of schools to Taiwan. Basic elementary schools at first, but later even universities. We also heard about the struggles Taiwanese students faced under Japanese rule in moving up the educational ladder. At the point where we left off last week, World War II had just ended, and 50 years of Japanese rule with it. Taiwan now had a new government, the Republic of China. Ms. Zhang is back today to finish the exhibit story and to share some of the real artifacts from school days long ago that bring this story to life. The end of World War II and Japanese rule make a convenient stopping point for us, but Ms. Zhang says the transition to a new government brought fewer changes in classrooms than we might expect. The transition wasn't seamless, of course. The exhibit features a kind of safe-like strongbox. Once placed in classrooms and principals' offices across Taiwan, lockboxes like these stored portraits of Japan's imperial family and copies of honored documents. This particular box was repurposed after the war, but the people who did it were apparently in a hurry. The seal of the Republic of China has been affixed to the box, and new characters painted on it tell us it was now used to store school valuables. But symbols of the past still stare you right in the face. Parts of the original design, like imperial phoenixes, other signs of transition can be found in old school notebooks. The new government had introduced Mandarin Chinese as the new language of instruction, but kids had gotten so used to Japanese that some post-war notebooks still have Japanese writing in them for a while. Really, though, Ms. Zhang's point seems to be that these were mostly cosmetic changes, things that went away as the new order settled in. What we mostly see is one set of national symbols getting changed out for another. For instance, many old schoolyard statues got swapped out for new ones. The figures students were supposed to emulate under the old colonial order had been figures like the Japanese warrior Kusunoki Masashige and the studious peasant turned administrator Ninomiya Sontoku. Schools across Taiwan had statues of these figures. But the new government had its own figures for children to look up to, and so the old statues were taken down and replaced with statues of Confucius, then President Chiang Kai-shek, and the founder of the Republic of China, Sun Yat-sen. Ms. Zhang says the Republic of China government did bring over some changes based on its own system of education put in place for some years in mainland China, but in its essentials, the old system stuck, and even if the names of classes changed, their substance didn't change all that much. One feature of education shared by both the pre- and post-war years is an important theme of this exhibit. Today, we might think of education as something meant ideally to create productive and well-rounded humans, people able to get on in the world. 
According to this exhibit, though, one key goal of Taiwan's early education was instead to mold ideal citizens. These were obedient, rule-abiding people who shared a certain view of things. The real changes came not right after the war, but sometime later, as Taiwan's economy started to boom. More schools were built, people had greater options, and with money in the bank, they could afford to study at higher and higher levels. This exhibit is far from the first to look at education in Taiwan. But it has a refreshing take on the subject that makes it stand out. Many exhibits in the past have focused on things like textbooks. That's fair enough, because textbooks show what the government wanted students to learn. But that doesn't tell us much about the students, the people who actually sat through these classes. What was it like to actually go to school in the past? This exhibit lets the students themselves tell us. They don't always do this directly, but just the doodles in their notebooks alone can tell us a lot about what they thought. Alongside old notebooks is a section on school uniforms through the ages, covering both Japanese-era and post-war schools. Don't be mistaken, this display is not just about how schools thought uniforms should be worn. There are real examples here of uniforms that have been deliberately altered to break the rules. Ms. Zhang says that even in uniforms, kids found ways to assert their individuality. Alongside the uniforms are examples of teachers' comments about students' behavior and performance, report card evaluations from the past. Another refreshing part of this exhibit is that it moves beyond the classroom. Since well before World War II, field trips and graduation trips have been an important part of Taiwanese student life. The museum has hundreds of examples of itineraries, and the exhibit shows examples to give some idea of how school trips have changed and how they've stayed the same. For instance, in 1936, one school in Taipei sent its students on a trip to the central city of Taichung to take in sites like the city's park and a local marketplace. These days, markets may not be the most common place to go for a school trip. But Ms. Zhang explains that in the Japanese era, the idea was that markets were signs of the nation's commercial strength. Other popular sites in the Japanese era included indigenous villages. And then there were places with ideological ties, places like Japanese Shinto shrines that disappeared from itineraries after World War II. In the post-war era, temples and commemorative stones became popular. Again, though, these are just a few differences, and what has stayed the same has really stayed the same. The same historic sites and tourist attractions show up again and again, and even in the past few weeks, there's probably been at least one school group that's passed through some of these places. We're talking about places like Sun Moon Lake in Taiwan's heart, and the old Dutch fort at Anping in the southern city of Tainan. We can also see what students thought about these trips, or at least what they pretended to think. After school trips in the past, students had to write an essay about their experience. What do you want to be when you grow up? It's a question we've all been asked, and it's a question every Taiwanese person above a certain age remembers having to write an essay about at some point in their school life. 
The exhibit also includes real examples of these essays, written by budding doctors, teachers, and scientists. To develop their Chinese writing skills, students were encouraged to work in certain stock phrases considered to be elegant. That's why there are so many variations on the phrase, being without a goal in life is like being a ship without a rudder. Despite the cliches, though, Ms. Zhang says it's clear that real thought did go into these essays. There is the sickly child who wanted to become a doctor like the ones who'd helped them through their illness. Then there was the student who didn't do so well in school until they met an inspiring teacher, one that even inspired them to want to become a teacher themselves. There are examples of would-be scientists who thought carefully about the dangerous Cold War world they lived in and vowed to only use their science to help others and not destroy. One of the most fun bits in this exhibit is the mini-personality quiz that matches you up with one of several common career paths of the 1950s and 60s. Would you have done well as a doctor, teacher, or scientist in this era? This game is one way to find out. This last part of the exhibit is not meant to be consumed passively. Grown-up visitors, especially, are being challenged here to look back at what they once wanted to be and ask themselves if their dreams came true. If not, why? Did education have anything to do with changing your course in life? How has your education made you, you? I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time.